We're very happy this evening to welcome Mr. Alex Mauger, who's a Greenville Theological Seminary student, to our pulpit. So uh, please welcome him as he comes and brings the evening message. I'm blessed to be here. Thank you. Please open your Bibles to the book of Micah, that Old Testament prophet Micah. Our sermon text today is going to be from Micah chapter 7. Micah 7, verses 18 through 20. Micah 7, verses 18 through 20. While you're turning there, I'll let you know for some context. I will begin reading this passage back at verse 14. So again, Micah chapter 7, and I'll start reading at verse 14. Keep in mind as I read and as you listen that this is God's word and God himself is speaking to us. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures teach us that God's ways are far above our ways. In fact, even as the heavens are high above the earth, so are the thoughts of God and the ways of God above our thoughts and above our ways. So great is the mind of God. And as we read scripture, don't we see that from the lens of the people of God that he has a way of surprising his people? He has a habit of doing this. The people of God at these different times in history are constantly surprised, stunned, and marvel at the works of God in their own generation. This is perhaps most vividly seen in the Old Testament in the story of the Exodus. You have the people of Israel who have been redeemed from bondage in Egypt, let out, and then they suddenly find themselves trapped between Pharaoh's army on one side and the Red Sea on the other side. Then God does the unexpected, though they assume that they have just been taken out of Egypt to die right there. God splits the Red Sea clean in two, and the children of Israel pass through the walls of the sea as on dry ground. What a miracle that those eyes beheld, something they made sure they would pass on to the future generations. However, what we see here in this text is God surpassing and exceeding 
all previous expectations of these good things, of these deliverances that he is doing for his people. The people in Micah's time would have known the story of the Exodus and all the other great things that God had had done. They wouldn't have known necessarily what God is doing and what this text is talking about in taking away sin. They didn't know about Christ. They didn't know the details of the plan of salvation that we have for us. So I think that we see here in, in this passage that God is exceeding the expectations of what are going to have. I think that the main thing we see from this text, or at least a, a central thing here, is that salvation is of the Lord. In fact, that's the, the, the sermon title for tonight. Salvation is of the Lord. And I think that these last three verses help us to form a really rich and complete full understanding of this concept of how of who God is and how he relates to salvation. And I'll say as well that these, these last three verses of the whole book of Micah are just so rich. They are short verses to be sure. But there is so much that is packed into this text. So many good things about what God is doing for his people and saving them. It's just um, an incredibly beautiful passage. There are some of my favorite words in Scripture. And I hope uh, when you leave tonight, they will become some of your favorite words as well, if they're not already. And I think as we look at this text and see how salvation is of the Lord, we can see this in three main headings. The first of these is that is salvation and who God is. Then we will move on to see salvation and what God does. And then lastly, salvation and why God does it. In short, I think that this passage for us, uh, in, 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 in speaking of salvation and the Lord, uh, answers the who, the what, and the why. We will begin with the who, the question of who God is, salvation and who God is, at the very beginning. And we see this uh, just in the first phrase of verse 8. This short rhetorical question, excuse me, verse 18, where Micah says, Who is a God like you? This is a rhetorical question, is it not? He's not looking for an answer. The the obvious answer would be, there is no one. He alone is the God whom we must worship. There is no other God. Even if you look at the the other gods that, that the nations bow down to, they are not like him. Now, this is an important doctrine in the, the book of uh, Micah for a couple reasons that you may not know. Micah is named in, in Hebrew, who is like Yahweh or who is like Jehovah. So what God does in his wisdom, his, um, as he is authoring this book and putting scripture together, is he, is he takes a prophet and he names the prophet who is like Jehovah, then he has the prophet conclude his book with that question. I think that's fascinating. So another way, though, that, that we see who God is as being particularly um, pointed out in Micah is, is the fact that his solution to the people's problem is really focused on God to a degree that others aren't. Now, why do I say that? Let's look at Micah's solution to the people's problem, at least um, at first negatively, what it's not. As far as I know, if you read through Micah, you won't find a single call to repentance. 
course, calling people to repentance was a common practice of the Old Testament prophets. It seems like they called people to repentance more than any other people did in the entire scripture. And of course, I'm not saying that I don't think Micah was exempt from doing that. I'm sure in his ministry, he would have been calling people to repentance all the time. That's just not here in this book. That's not the emphasis here. You see, what Micah does do is present the solution that God is doing exclusively. So in repentance, God does act. We participate, but God is working in us. What Micah is presenting, this solution of salvation, God delivering his people from sin, is a solution that he's doing apart from us. So this particular question of who God is, is particularly important in Micah. And also in, in the Old Testament prophets and in the Old Testament in general. Think of the most basic tenet of the faith. If you were to look at the Ten Commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before me. This is the very first question that's presented to us in our Ten Commandments. Is it so fundamental? However, the people of Israel had a hard time grasping this, or at least they had a hard time practicing the worship of the true God. King Solomon, even though he was greatly favored by God, he communed with him directly. God gave him enormous wisdom and enormous material blessing and even authored books of of scripture, was eventually led astray in his heart to worship idols. Things got worse under Ahab, and by the time that you come to Ezekiel, as you're reading Ezekiel's prophecy, you, you see Idols that have been brought into the temple of God and being worshipped, the temple of God. Isn't that such a grievous and a heinous thought to think the place that should be seen as the most holy, where you're least likely to see idolatry, is where you find it? So that, that's part of the reason, I believe, that, that this view, this, this, I should say, this doctrine of there being one God, and that being the God of, of the Bible, being so pronounced and hammered by the prophets again and again, is done so because the people had such a hard time grasping it and practicing it. Now, who is our God? Now, as, as Christians, having the, the complete revelation of both Old and New Testament, we can say that we believe that God is a trinity, We certainly do believe in one God, as both the Old Testament and the New Testament teaches. We also believe that God is in three persons. So we confess three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. However, in one God. And this is a great mystery, is it not? It's one that that great theologians will think over and ponder over and meditate and never truly exhaust and and as humans how can we now 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 this isn't a sermon or a uh, lesson on the trinity and it's not intended to be one and it can't be one but this is one thing that i wanted to bring out here because as we talk about who god is we have to be specific the god that we worship and the way that we describe him cannot be confused with the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, the God of the Mormons, the God of those who practice the Jewish religion, 
if they do not worship Jesus as the eternal God. They do not worship the true God. What does Jesus say? In John 5.23, he says, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We must recognize that if you're going to worship the true God, you must be worshiping Jesus. To refuse to worship Jesus and to honor him and to call him God is to refuse to acknowledge the true God. Salvation and who God is. Of course, the, the rhetorical punch that's really being driven home here when Micah asks this short question is that there is no other God like him. And so we have God's great uniqueness. And that's expounded on as we progress into our second point, salvation and what God does. So what Micah's going to do here is he's uh, partly going to answer the, the question of why there's no God like our God because of what he does. Why do you say that he is so singular, Micah? Well, look at the things he does. And I'm, I'll go ahead and I'll read this section again who is pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Now, what I'm going to present to you here are these acts of God. I believe what is presented to us here is a body of salvation, first of all. And then I think that this body of salvation is presented to us. It's like tailor-made for us so that we would view it through a certain aspect and and, uh, glean something about it like that. So I'm using the uh, imagery here of a body and its clothing. So let me give you an example of this. Imagine a, a, a remarkable man such as Teddy Roosevelt. Of course, he was a president of this country. He was remarkable as a scholar, uh, as an administrator, as, as president, of course. He was also a soldier in his younger days. You can imagine giving a presentation of Teddy Roosevelt as a soldier. Imagine him standing up here with his gun and his hat, his boots, and his uniform on, or a presentation of him as an administrator. You could see him with his, um, with his pad and his pen as he's taking notes and writing up a plan. We're talking about the same person, but what we're doing with this clothing is depicting a certain aspect of him. We're, we're highlighting an attribute and commu- trying to co- communicate that. And I'll just tip you off here. I believe that this body of salvation that's being presented to us is presented to us as an exodus. So the, the, the later point that I'm going to get to, uh, get to here is that the exodus, the historical exodus that I began talking about tonight, is the covering, is the clothing that God's salvation of his people is presented as. And there is great reason for doing that. But first, before we look at that, Uh, clothing of salvation. We're going to look at the body of salvation and we're going to see, we're going to dissect the structure here 
in verses uh, 18 and 19. And Micah is such a uh, brilliant writer, or I should say that Micah, inspired by the, the Holy Spirit, has written a, um, a, really, a really brilliant and uh, tightly condensed almost um, poem here. And, and there's so much to draw out. So I, I will take a few minutes here, try to bear with me as I, as I try to pull out some of the really rich things that are in this passage. But th- th- this passage is just so condensed and s- so rich, it would be hard to, and it wouldn't be doing it justice to fly by it without trying to pull out some of the glorious things that God has done for his people. And we're going to do this by looking at the structure of these two verses, the structure of verses 18 and 19. I'm going to um, give you the, the example of a triangle to try to present the structure. So you have, imagine there are two sides here, two points of the triangle here at, at the bottom. At the very beginning and at the very end, they are similar to each other. They're on the same level. I think that we see that here. The very first statement and the very last statement of these two verses together are uh, intended to parallel, to mirror each other. Then you go one step in, the step that's right after the first step and right before the last step um, are also supposed to parallel each other. And then you have something that's right in the middle. You have this top point, the core, and that's kind of supposed to be the central message. So I think that we see something similar here. Now, I, I uh, mentioned or, or said that these, these first steps, and I'm going to call them a frame. So I'm going to call the very first statement the beginning frame and the last statement the end frame. Let me, now, now that I've given you that kind of, um, I don't know what the word is, but um, analogical information, I'm, I'm, going to, like, I'm just going to read the text and it'll make sense to you. Just, just look at the text and it'll just come out very naturally. So here's this beginning frame, this first statement. It says this, God is pardoning iniquity and he passes over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. And then we have this final statement, this end frame, which says this, the God treads our iniquities underfoot. He casts our sins into the depths of the sea. So let's just begin looking at what the text is telling us. And and we should be struck by the statement that says that God pardons our iniquity. And no matter how how, uh, far we progress as Christians, how much we learn about God and grow in faith, we should never outgrow our amazement that God pardons our iniquity. That's such a sweet statement, that God is counting us not guilty for the things, through the evil acts that we have done. I will note here that the original word in Hebrew has kind of this sense of a lifting or a lifting up. So the sense of, of the word appears to be that God is taking the iniquity from off, of, from off of them. Now, how many of you here are familiar with the Pilgrim's Progress? If you've read the book, or at least if you've seen a movie or had the story told to you, you know that there's a man named Pilgrim who, who has left the city of destruction. He's headed for the celestial city, 
but he is burdened with this uh, great burden, which represents his sin, what God does, and, and what he, I should say what he needs is to have that burden lifted up, lifted up from off of him. I think that's kind of the image here of people, of sinners with their great burdens of iniquity, and God is just lifting their iniquity from off of them. And then we have this idea of God is passing over transgression. Now, how are how does how does this present our God as unique? Well, if if you look at the pagan gods, especially around this time, how many of them are truly merciful? Do they really forgive your sins if you were to to uh, transgress against them? These gods were vicious. The gods that the that the peoples thought of in their own minds. When I was in middle school, I I uh, studied about Greek mythology and these these gods, you know, Zeus and Hermes on Mount Olympus that these Greeks thought of are not virtuous people. <laughs> they uh, simply seem to be bigger and more powerful uh, versions of those who invented him. That's how evil they were. But the true God is not like that. So I, I think that part of the reason here, if not the reason, that Micah draws out how unique our God is and saying, who is a God like you, is because he does pardon iniquity and because he does pass over transgression. Now we have this first statement at, at the beginning of verse 18. And then I said that the, that the second statement, this end frame, is intended to parallel it. Let me try to bring that out. Well, first of all, the same word, iniquity, is used. So in the first instance, it says this, that God pardons iniquity. And then secondly, uh, here at the end, it says he treads our iniquity underfoot. I think that the second statement here at the end intends to build on the first. It exceeds it. If you've studied um, the mechanisms of Hebrew literature in the, the Old Testament. Maybe you're familiar with the idea of a parallelism. So in, in the Psalms, you, know, you, you see one way that poetry is expressed is you have a certain statement that's made, and then you have a parallel statement right after it, which, which either builds on it or, or uh, it, it can exceed it or surpass it or something like that. And so I think that we have something very similar here. God not only pardons iniquity, but we have this, this more uh, dramatic image of him treading it underfoot. And then we have, actually, I'll say this. Before I move on to the phrase that God uh, casts our sins into the depths of the sea, let me uh, again draw out the contrast in imagery as regards iniquity. The first statement says, it's, it's as if God lifts our iniquity from off of us. Then we have this contrasting image of our iniquity being trodden underfoot. So it's, it's as if, no matter how you think, how you can envision God dealing with our iniquity, it's taken care of. He has got it taken care of. And then we have this image of casting our sins into the depths of the sea. Whereas in the first image, you have something that's very passive, 
our sins or our, our transgressions that are being passed over, this second statement is very active. It's, it's, it's as if God is, is saying, it's not as if I'm just going to turn a blind eye to the sin, not look at it, and not punish you for it. I'm going to take that sin, and I'm going to grab it by the scruff of its neck. I'm going to hurl it up into a little ball, and I'm going to cast it into the sea, and it will be gone forever. So that's essentially here what, why I see that the very beginning of verse 18 and the end of verse 19 kind of uh, paralleling each other with, with the imagery that's given. At first, you have sin that's being lifted up off of you, and then you see a dramatic image of it being stomped down. Then you have this, you also have the image of sin that's being passed over, it's being not taken care of. That's also contrasted with this image of God taking that sin and handling it and then casting it into the depths of the sea. And it, it's, as, it's as if here Micah is using his poetic toolbox. He's just pulling out these tools. Obviously, he's being inspired and is writing the words of God to uh, describe what God does to sin in so many ways. And um, that, that's something that, that, that I think is here and that, w- that would be wise for us to see from this text and, and kind of look at the wisdom of, of God. These, these things are here in, in this text and if they hadn't been brought out or studied, we probably would never see that God had written the text this way. So we see here kind of the, the frame of this section. As we talk about what God is doing, salvation, what God is, is uh, doing, we have these acts of salvation as the frame. But then we're going to move kind of up and center in, into the triangle, and we're gonna, going to get to the core. And these are the three phrases that we haven't dealt with yet, and they are these. They say that God will not retain his anger forever, that he delights in steadfast love, and that he will, again, have compassion on us. And again, if you continue with the triangle analogy, the first statement of these and the third, sta- and the third statement of these, I believe, go together. The only difference, or one of the key differences, is that the first is stated negatively, what God will not do, and the, and the third one is stated positively, what God is doing. Look at this. The first one says that God will not retain his anger forever. And then we read there in the third statement that God will again, that God will have compassion on us. Aren't these just uh, two ways of saying the same thing? If God is, is, is not, um, if God is not expressing his attribute of anger on people and God is having Compassion on, on, on people. So by negating the first, you have to affirm the second. And as we move here into, into the core, we are looking at God's attributes. So, we're, uh, so the focus kind of goes away from the acts of God inward into the attributes of God. And if you like alliteration, the three attributes that I think are, uh, can be seen here are contempt, Kindness and compassion. God says he will not show uh, contempt. 
He will show compassion. And then we move to the core of the core. And it's this central phrase that's right here. that says, he delights in steadfast love. This is the word I just gave to you as kindness. In fact, this Hebrew word is translated many ways in our versions because it's such a rich term. It's hard to find one word that conveys the richness of, of this particular attribute of, of God. Here in the, in the version that I am using, it's called steadfast love. Your versions might say loving kindness or um, tender mercies or something, something akin to that. And here at the core of the core, we have God delighting in steadfast love. Now just take a moment to think about the comfort of that. Think about the, the impact of, of the statement that God delights in steadfast love. It's, it's not only that he would cons- consider showing this kind of love, this kindness to his people, or that he does it from time to time, or simply that, that he uh, does it, although he, 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 he might not enjoy doing it, but not only does he like doing it, God delights in showing this kindness of forgiveness toward his people. And this is a trait that I think is rare even in humans. All of us here, I'm sure, can think of times or can, can just imagine people sliding us, wronging us, sinning against us, then having this, uh, this sinful in- inclination inside of us to, to, want, to want to see you know, justice come t- to that person. Either you, you want to chew them out, want, you want to see someone else, Chew them out, you want to see them punished. Very, very few of us, probably. And of course, I, 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 don't, I don't know you guys. I, I don't, um, I, I, so I, I can't uh, necessarily speak for you, but speaking for me, I, I think that there's probably very few people um, who, who could wrong us and we would love to forgive them as soon as they come to us. This is the kind of, of love, this is the loving kindness that God has for his people. He just delights in doing it. He loves it so much when people repent of their sins. It is as if the scriptures are saying that he is overjoyed. What does Jesus say in Luke? He says that the angels rejoice when a sinner comes to repentance. It, it appears as well, at least as the language is presented to us, God is rejoicing as well. This is a great truth and one that should comfort all of our hearts. So we have seen there, as we talk about what God does in salvation, the body of salvation, these, these acts of God that are uh, kind of um, impelled by God's Attributes, especially by his attribute of steadfast love. And now we move into how this is presented to us. Um, as I said, I believe that this salvation that God has done is presented to us in terms of an exodus. I think we can see similarities and differences with the exodus here. Um, the exodus took place in Exodus chapter 14, and then right after that, in Exodus chapter 15, we have what's called the Song of the Sea, where uh, we have this song of 
Moses, where uh, that celebrates this great deliverance that God has has done. And there are there are so many parallels between this text and between that text. I'm not going to draw them out. I'm not going to draw them all out. I'm not going to try, but just a a a few that make this connection uh, is the fact that Exodus 15:11 uses this question: Who is like you among the gods? That's very similar to the beginning of this text, is it not? Where Micah asks the rhetorical question: Who is a god like you? We also have the um, fact that in verse 19 here it says that God will tread our iniquities underfoot. Now this is military image. You know, this is uh, conquest language of what a conquering king or a conquering army would would do. That's implicit though, but then we see something that becomes very explicit. Towards the end of verse 19, we read that God will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. And and um, what we what we had been suspecting all along uh, that, that God is treating our sin as he treated the Egyptians in the Old Testament is indeed confirmed. And, and, and that's actually why I began our scripture reading at verse 14, where we see so clearly that um, God is predicting a new exodus. Like in, in verse 15, it actually uses the phrase, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. So God is taking this great event of the past that had uh, that surpassed the expectations of the people of what God would do for them. And God is surpassing even that. What God does is he gets to the root of the problem. And, and this kind of covers some, some of the differences between the historical exodus and the exodus that Micah is, is talking about. What I'm going to call the new exodus or the spiritual exodus. In the historical exodus, in the first one, we had a physical problem and we had a physical solution, didn't we? What was their problem? The people of Israel were slaves in the land of Egypt. What was the solution? They were brought out of the land of Egypt and brought to the promised land. God could do all of that without saving a single soul. I'm sure that he did, but the, but the focus in the Old Testament is on the picture, on the picture of salvation on the physical level. What's presented here gets deeper. It gets to the root. Our problem is no longer a, a physical bondage of slavery. Our, our problem is a spiritual bondage to sin. And what's being presented to us is the spiritual solution of God's forgiveness. And I, I think this has made all the more remarkable by the fact that this is seemingly unnecessary here in Micah. Now, why do I say that it's seemingly unnecessary? At, at this point, when Micah is writing, the people of God are, um, are facing deportation and exile a second time. This time it would be Babylon. And so Micah actually talks about a physical problem of exile in Babylon, and he talks about a physical solution of being redeemed from the exile and brought back. 
So with this context of, of the history of the people of Israel at this time and, with, and at this point of the book, to be frank, uh, I think that's, that's what we should expect. But, but what God does here is far more than what we would expect, right? And I think that's, I think that's the point here. What God does is tremendously significant. Now, I want to bring out here, before we move on to our third point, um, that God does these acts of salvation, these good things for us. But that's not the entire equation. God is good to us because he condemned Christ. So as we read all of these good things, all of these um, these blessings of salvation, these promises that are told to us in verses 18 and 19, we should and ought to marvel and, and rejoice in them, the fact that God is doing these things for us. But we can also look at every single one and say, all right, God didn't do this thing for Christ, or, or perhaps better put, we can invert that statement and then apply it to him. So Micah here says about us that God pardons our iniquity. However, God did not pardon Christ. God condemned Christ on the cross. God passes over our transgression, but God visited our transgression upon Christ. God does not retain his anger forever against us. However, God did pour out his wrath on Christ. God delights in steadfast love for us, his people. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Micah says, God will again have compassion on us. But this can only happen because God forsook the Son. God can tread our iniquities underfoot because Christ, as it were, was trodden underfoot on the cross. And God can cast our sins into the depths of the sea because Christ, as it were, was cast into hell while he was on the cross for those few hours. So great was his infinite suffering upon the cross. So as we read about the great things that God does for us in salvation, we should be stunned, we should marvel and rejoice and take it very seriously because our salvation may be free for us, but it wasn't free for Christ. We have a saying in America that freedom is not free. As, as Christians, how much more true is that? Our freedom, or I should say our liberty from slavery, while it's free for us, had to be purchased at the at the greatest possible price, the sacrifice of the Son of God. So keep that in mind as we continue to go through the sermon and as you think about the great benefits and salvation that God has given to us. So far, the book of Micah is presenting to us sin as our greatest problem. But do we as Christians today think of sin as our greatest problem? Jesus teaches very clearly that there is a uh, binary reality on the battlefield. You cannot uh, serve two masters. You cannot be serving God and be serving Satan. You can't be following Christ and also be a follower of 
sin, ultimately. You can only have a new relationship with God, as has been said before by someone else. You don't have a new relationship with God if you don't have a new relationship with sin. That's why we have to be born again. If we do have a new relationship with God, if we have become his allies, as it were, in the army of God on his battlefield, then we are now faced against sin, seeking to fight it, seeking to slay it, and to put it to death. However, if in our innermost heart of hearts, we have a harbor for sin, we do not seek to slay it. We seek to foster it. In fact, we feed it and we kind of let it grow there where no one else can see it. That's, that, that's a sign that we are not on the side of God. That in fact, we are on the wrong side of the battlefield. If you are a friend, if you are an ally of sin, then you are an enemy of God. And that's not where you want to be. You're on the wrong side of the battlefield. And if you're sitting here, here today and uh, thinking perhaps that, that you, you have these, these sins that you have been storing up in your heart perhaps for years, have never repented of, um, and perhaps never told people about, or perhaps you have, but you, you still refuse to give up these, to give up on these sins, that's a sign that you are not a true believer. I don't know you guys here, so I don't have anyone here in mind, but this is a truth that all Christians should think of and, and, should, uh, and should talk about to others. We should search our hearts, see if we truly have a great love for God and truly have a hatred for sin. These are the things that God requires of us. So uh, search all of your hearts here today. And if you find that you are an enemy of God and that you are a servant of sin, then repent and come to Christ. He will not cast you out. This is part of the great benefit of what God does for us in salvation. Then thirdly and lastly, we move on to salvation and why God does it which answers the question of why. And we see this in verse 20, which says this, You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. There's just a couple things I want to bring out here as we talk about the why, why God does salvation. The first is God's covenant. And I, I think that's pretty Obvious here, as, as the text says, it talks about God's showing faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as he swore to the fathers. Clearly, this is speaking of the Abrahamic covenant. You will read about this in the book of Genesis. But God is saying is that because of this covenant that I made with these patriarchs, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do this new exodus to deliver them from sin to bring them into salvation, out of the bondage of the slavery of transgression into the heavenly promised land, the heavenly Canaan. What's interesting is that even the first exodus um, was uh, grounded in the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis chapter 15, you will read that God promises to Abraham that his ancestors, not his ancestors, his descendants are going to be in Egypt then he's going to bring them out. And then you read the beginning of the book of, of Exodus, that the people are in bondage and they groan 
to God. God hears their cry. And the book says, God remembers his covenant that he made with his fathers. And that's, that's the precedent. That, that's part of the reason why God does the exodus in the first place. What, what's being taught here is that there's layers to that. Yes, there was that physical um, layer that, that we read about in, in Genesis and Exodus. That God made this covenant with Abraham and on a physical level, as a result of this covenant, God brings his people out in Exodus. But there's also a spiritual level. The Abrahamic covenant has, a, has spiritual dimensions as well. And it's because of that that God is, bringing, that God is being uh, faithful to Jacob and, and showing steadfast love to Abraham, to the people of Israel, and today to his church, just as he has promised there is a lot of material in scripture that, that talks about the spiritual nature of the Abrahamic covenant. There's no way we can go into all that. Um, but just briefly, in Genesis 17:7, God uh, promises to Abraham to be a God to him and to his children. That's a spiritual promise. In Galatians chapter 3, we read of the Abrahamic promise of the Spirit. Talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, if the Holy Spirit is not a spiritual promise, then I don't know what is. We're clearly talking about a uh, covenant that not only has physical dimensions and ramifications, but profoundly spiritual ones uh, as well. So we're going back to the fact that that God had said that he would do this for his people when, when he swore to those patriarchs so many centuries ago. And God is going to be faithful to that. But I want to take it to an even deeper level, to the most profound level we can go to. So we have God's covenant as the why, but also God's character. Now, I mentioned at the end of verse 19 that we have this rich Hebrew word that for me is translated as steadfast love. Or for you, it might be kindness or something like that. This word reappears here in verse 20. And at the end of verse 19, I was talking about the core of the core of why God does, excuse me, of what God is doing. And the core of the core says he delights in this steadfast love. And that attribute of God, his steadfast love is brought forward here in verse 20. It's, it's, it's as if it's saying God's character, his nature of being so extremely loving and um, d- d- desirous of communion with his, his people. This is spilling out into his covenant that he is making. And as, as a result of this covenant, we have God's uh, attributes of of anger that he is not pouring out on his people and his compassion that he is showing to his people and then you have the acts of god pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression and of treading iniquity underfoot and of casting our sin into the depths of the sea so at the ultimate level all that we see comes back to god god is the originator of this in every sense of the term because it's only because of his character that he decided to do this 
in the first place. I have a professor at seminary who loves to say God does what he does because he is who he is. If he were not a good God, if he were not a gracious God, he would not be doing this. He wouldn't give us such a great salvation. But he does because he is such a good God. That's not to say that, that God was bound or that God was compelled to do these things for us necessarily. Of course not. If anyone has free will, God has free will. And God could have free, freely chosen not to save us. However, out of his kindness, he has chosen to do so. So we see out of God's character out of, and the impossibility of him breaking his word, of him breaking a promise and oath to his, his, his people, um, we have this salvation being made secure. It will certainly happen. There is no way that it cannot happen. So what does this mean for us today? I don't think that we have, well, of course, we, we don't have the name of Christ presented to us, the name of Jesus presented to us in this text. But um, as I suggested, as I heavily implied before, I think that we, uh, as it were, almost have the name of Jesus written between every line. What we should do is come to Christ. There's a really rich and free offer of the gospel that should be given. We have such a rich demonstration of what God does for salvation in this text. So you should come to Christ and he will save you. There's, there's a promise that Jesus makes that all those who come, he will in no wise pass out. Jesus says in Matthew, Matthew 11, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ wants us to come to him. If you're not a Christian here today, again, I don't, I don't know you guys. If, if you're here as a visitor or as a, as, as a friend of a member here, if you're not a Christian, then come to Christ today. Look at the great blessings that are laid out for you. Look at the Christ that is presented to you. Don't you de- desire him? And don't you desire what is being offered to you? To have your guilty conscience purged, cleansed away, your sins taken off from you. To have communion with God as you see the, the inward struggle of, of sin being conquested. Isn't that something that you desire? So come to Christ today if you're sitting here and you are not a Christian. Maybe you're sitting here and you're not a Christian, you're not saved, but you think you are. If that's the case, then search your hearts. This is what Paul and this is what Peter tell us. Um, They uh, tell us to be sure that we are in the faith. Make your calling and election sure. So search yourselves. The more that you spend time in scripture and commune with God and reflect on what God is is telling to you and what God does for his people, and you look inward as well on your own thoughts and minds, God will make clear through these means of grace, especially through the scripture, if you are breaking his word, if you are not on his side in the battle. And if you are not on God's side in the battle, 
then you will be as the sin that is presented here. Everything that I said that happened to Christ, that was the opposite of what's presented, what happens to God's people, will happen to you if you are not a Christian. So just as God condemned Christ so that he could pardon us, God will condemn you if you are not found in Christ. So we urge you to flee the wrath to come. Now, let me also speak to those of you who are saved. And I hope and trust that's most of you here today being in, in this church. You still need to come to Christ. We keep on coming to Christ even after we have first come to him. It is not as if Christ is one stop on our road to heaven, but more like Christ is our companion. We should never seek to depart from him. Who else is your source of wisdom, your source of life and nourishment, if, if not Christ? Who else would you rather behold on a, on a Sunday or really on any day than Christ? How else is your soul going to be fed? How else is your mind going to be taught the deep and rich truths of God and how we should live our Christian life if it's not Christ? Christ is the source. Christ is the fountain of all of this. So as believers, because we have come to Christ and have been accepted by him, I think, if anything, we have even more impetus and more reason to come to him now. So continue coming to Christ. Look to him. One particular application we can make of this is coming to church. What does Christ say about being in the midst of his people? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Hebrews chapter 2 speaks of, of Christ singing praise in the midst of the congregation. What the scriptures teach is that when the church is gathered... Christ is here as well. So one way, at least tangibly, in which we can come to Christ is by being with the body of Christ, is being with his church. Commune with Christ and his word. It is the Son of God who has given us this book. He speaks to us through it. So as Christians, we should love this book. We should desire it and read it not just because we like the stories, although we do, not just because we like learning about theology, although we do, but also because, and chiefly because, we want to see Christ here in the scriptures. And we want us as, as Christians who have literally been named after him to be more conformed to the image of Christ. This is what we call sanctification, us becoming less and less sinful and God making us more holy from the inside through his own power by the spirit that he has given to us. The Father has sent us the spirit to make us like the Son. This is the glorious God of whom we are speaking. This is the God of whom Micah says, who is a God like you? And if, if Micah can say, who is a God like you? How much more can we echo that phrase as New Testament Christians and say, who is the God like you who pardons iniquity and who passes over transgression from the remnant of his inheritance, who does not retain his anger forever, who delights in steadfast love, who will again have compassion on us, who will tread all our iniquities 
underfoot, who will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. God does surprise us, does he not? This is what we can see just looking through the lens of the Gospels and the New Testament of God's uh, overabundance, this, this overflowing cup of grace and mercy that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. And if this is what we see now, if this is what we are, what we are stunned by and marvel at now as we look at what God has done, how much more so in heaven? How much more so when we are in heaven, when we can see Christ face to face, have perfect communion with him, and no longer be engaged in that battle against sin? That's been won. That's gone. The enemy has not only been dealt the mortal wound as it has been now, but it has died. Perfect communion with God. We see all these great things. And then and now, as as Christians, we can say and praise to God, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you who is three divine persons in one essence? Who is a God like you who simply spoke a word And the world came into existence. Who is a God like you who created a man, a creature, in his own image and breathed into him the breath of life? Who is a God like you who had pity and compassion on this fallen creation and who covenanted to redeem him? Who is a God like you who has become incarnate, has become as a creature, as one of us, to live, to breathe, and to die as one of us for our salvation? Who is a God like you who now patiently forbears against all the sins that are being committed, who sits in heaven as as the enemies of God raise their voice and raise their spears against him? He does not unleash a flood. but Instead, he is patient toward them, giving them patience as an opportunity for repentance. Who is a God like you? Christians, this is the God that we serve. There is none like him. He is great. He is glorious. He is Jesus. So look to him, worship him, love him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for what you have done for us in Scripture what the scripture tells for us about what you have done. Thank you for sending us Christ, for um, giving us this great plan of salvation. We pray that we would not take it lightly, that we would rejoice in our Savior, come to appreciate him all the more. These things we pray in Jesus' name.